Well, I hope your year got started off well. I hope you made some black-eyed peas, man. I hope you did do all that. And, I mean, is that. You're from the South, you're in Texas, you can understand that stuff. And uh, I hope, hope, hope you have a great 2022. I know we got people getting married this year, going to have a few babies this year. The year's going to be great. Pretty sure at some point this year, we're going to start seeing some ground turning for our face, too. And I got confidence. This is going to be a great year. And we're looking forward to it. And uh, some of you have made the comment to me already that I don't sound very good. Others have said I don't look very good. That's a common occurrence. Just once you know I have allergies, that's it. By allergies, what I actually mean is I'm allergic to something that's in the air. That's it. There's nothing more. You know? So if you want to keep your distance and socially stay away from me, I got you. But I'm doing good. So don't worry about those things. Uh, we're starting a new series today that's going to take us through the end of April. It's called Breakthrough. And, uh, and for the next 17 weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. And I hope over these next few months that you will, on several occasions, read through Mark. Some of you have, you know, certain Bible reading plans already, and I got that. But just read through the Gospel of Mark some. I'd encourage you at least one time to do it in just one sitting. It takes about an hour. Uh, and if you don't like reading that long, you can download a Bible app that has the audio. You can take care of all those things. But here's what I want to challenge you to do over the next few months. Become fluent in the gospel of Mark. Become fluent in Mark, because here's what I want you to see in this series about Mark, writing to a primarily Gentile audience. Mark's account of the life of Jesus provided a breakthrough for people who knew nothing of the God who loved them. Mark was writing primarily to people who were Gentiles, not exclusively, primarily, and they knew nothing of the God who loved them. Do you realize that we live in a time right now where there are people all around us, maybe some, who are here in this service, who know nothing of the God who loves you? And Mark will help you understand about that God. We're going to begin today in the first chapter, a sermon entitled Breaking Into the World. And as we come in a few moments, to different verses through this chapter. We're, we're going to kind of cover this, you know, the stuff in Mark as best we can, and we'll highlight certain parts of it more than others. But here's what I want you to see from the message today. In all of human history, Jesus broke into the world at a special moment in time, a very special moment in time. And he made possible something special, a breakthrough in the struggle with sin. What Jesus did, as much as anything else, is he took our struggle with sin and made a breakthrough at just the right moment in time. Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word beginning in the Greek text, archae, means something of importance. It's something that maybe has a sense of authority or something of great significance. All four of the Gospels begin in their own unique way. Matthew begins his Gospel as he writes primarily to Hebrew people, Jewish people. He takes them back to the genealogy of Jesus, connecting Jesus with Abraham. Luke, writing to a much more diverse cosmopolitan audience as exemplified from the one he mentions, Theophilus, collected a whole lot of data. And so he wanted to start not just with the birth of Jesus, he wanted to go back to the forerunner, John the Baptist. John, writing some 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, took us back before creation to all eternity to show us that Jesus has always been in existence, God who became flesh. Mark, writing to a much different audience maybe, 
knowing that most of his readers came from pagan backgrounds. Not all of them, most of them. He wanted to begin with a sense of urgency in a shorter, shorter book. And so he begins in this chapter one. One of the, one of the things you need to realize about the, the gospel of Mark, and with, with all uh, four of the gospel writers, is that they don't tell us who they are in the book. You know, they don't mention their name. There's information in those books that we can glean things. A lot of it depends on early church fathers what tell, who tell us who they are. And Mark's no exception. In fact, the interesting thing about Mark is not only are we going to find out who it is that wrote it, but we're going to find out where he got his information from, not from the text itself, but from what the early church fathers believed. The first one to really shed light on this was a man named Papias. He was born in about 70 AD, died in the middle of the second century. He was probably a student of the apostle John at some point. Now, we don't have anything that Papias wrote with us, but there were other people from back in those days, those early few hundred years, that quoted him. And one man in the fourth century named Eusebius quotes Papias as referencing Mark. And here's the interesting thing. He says that Mark was in Rome, and he was with Peter, and he was the interpreter of Peter. We might understand that to mean the guy who wrote stuff down. And he wrote down, not an orderly account, but as Peter spoke messages to meet the needs of people. And as he just spoke with Peter, he wrote down the things that Peter said. So what Papias is saying is that Mark's account actually is really, he got it from Peter, the apostle. They are the memoirs of Peter. He's not the only one. In the second century, Justin Martyr affirms that. Also, Irenaeus, one of the most trusted of the early church fathers, towards the end of the second century, affirms that Mark wrote this gospel with information from Peter. Into the third century, we see Clement of Alexandria. We see Origen. I mean, we could go on and on. In the fourth century, Eusebius, and there are others. They all claim the same thing. Mark, somehow, somehow, someway, wrote this gospel. And his primary source was Peter. Now, there are things in the text that you read it. If you read the gospel of Mark, and, and we're going to see that, especially in the first chapter, it has the appearance of kind of a first-hand account. It didn't come from Mark. But, it, but this is first-hand account of the guy who saw things that were going on. There are times that Mark talks about Peter in such ways you get keen insight into things that are Peter saying. This just book just has the feel of someone who was there, who knew what was going on. Now, the Mark who wrote this is the mark that we see in the book of Acts in the 13th chapter that went with Paul and his cousin Barnabas on a missionary journey and then left. And, you know, he deserted Paul. And the next time they started a journey and Barnabas said, let's take Mark again, Paul's like, no. And there was this split kind of between Mark and Paul. But Paul and Mark evidently reconciled because in the book of Colossians in the fourth chapter, um, in the 10th verse, he affirms John Mark, the, the cousin of Barnabas. In his last book that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, at the very end, the fourth chapter, he says to Timothy, go get Mark, bring him with you, for only Luke is with me. I mean, he wanted his three closest companions, Luke, Timothy, and Mark. So Mark was close to Paul, Mark was close to Peter, and he wrote this book. Now, what the interesting thing is, about 95% of what Mark wrote can be found in either Matthew or Luke or in both, most of it, which has people kind of feeling that, you know, there's shared material with these three guys. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were what we call the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to be seen together. And they're very similar, and so they used information from each other. Now, sometimes, if you grow up in the church, 
you're kind of raised to think, well, there's Matthew, and then over here there's Mark, and Luke, and John, and they're separate, you know, and they went off somewhere, and, and you know, there's closet somewhere, and with the Holy Spirit, they just wrote it all down. And, and whenever we have these ideas that maybe they shared information, there's interaction, it bothers us. Listen, all of these books are the sacred scriptures of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's okay, though, if we understand there was a process involved in them coming together. In fact, we tend to think of the order of their written being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that's how we have the New Testament. Understand, the New Testament is sacred. The order in which they appear is not. People just put that together. In fact, we know that there were certain, in the early church, certain times that the four Gospels appeared in different order with John even being the first one. So most likely, these guys all knew each other. We knew Mark and Luke knew each other. And we probably should assume that Matthew knew him. And so probably what happened is Mark's writing this account. Got it from Peter. And Luke, knowing Mark, says, I'm going to write an account. I'm gathering all this information. Can I borrow your stuff? And Mark says, sure, help yourself. And then Matthew's about to write an account, primarily to the Hebrew people, to the Jews, knows that Mark has his account. He goes, you got it from Peter? Yeah, I got it from Peter. Let me look at it. That's pretty good stuff. I'm going to borrow it. And then I'm going to add my own stuff to it, like the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Matthew adds a whole bunch of stuff, not in Mark. And these books just came to be with us. And so probably knowing that Luke had to have written his book by 62 AD because he wrote Luke and Acts together, and he ends Acts with Paul in prison at the beginning of, you know, the 60s, 61, 62, Mark was probably written sometime before 60 AD. Here's the account of Peter understanding the story of Jesus. And in doing this, there's an attack, literally, I mean, not literally, but I mean, it's an attack in writing on the religious systems of their day, primarily the religious system of the Jews and the religious system of the pagans, saying these systems have you in bondage, and Jesus came to free you. So we see that he wrote the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel. The, the, the word gospel means good news. Some of your versions will have good news even. It's, it's, the word is euangelion. It's the word evangel. Our word evangelism, to preach the good news, is to evangelize. That's where we get that from. And so he has good news. And in, in, in that day and age, the good news in the New Testament era, by the time Mark starts to write, was almost always associated with Jesus. Jesus was the gospel. So he says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, because Jesus is the gospel. That's who he's presenting. And by the time you get to the, not the, the New Testament era, when Mark began to write this stuff, Jesus was associated with salvation. So to speak of Jesus was to speak of the Savior. So it's like he's saying, here is Jesus, who is the gospel, who is our Savior. He also happens to be the, the Son of God. This, this would be kind of a connecting back to the Old Testament. Now, I realize Mark writing to primarily Gentiles, why would they care about the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament? Well, all of them understood that it was in the Jewish scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament, that the coming of the Messiah was shared. So it was critical to always show that Jesus fulfilled all that God had promised. Now, Matthew, it's most more important to do that to the Hebrews, but even to the Gentiles. The Gentiles could deal with this. They didn't have a problem understanding that Jesus fulfilled something that was promised. So here he is, the gospel of the Son of God. To be the Son spoke of two things. It was, one, you represented who your father was. A son back in the end represented the father, and a son served the father. So Jesus was the servant of God and the representative of God who had come. And what we have then is the account of Peter that Mark writes down. Because it comes from Peter, it has a sense of authority 
because Peter was an apostle, and authenticity because Peter was there. No, oh, by the way, authority plus authenticity equals credibility. Authority plus authenticity equals credibility. So Mark's giving us a credible account, and he's going to begin it with John the Baptist. So he's going to go in the second verse, quoting actually even from Isaiah about someone who was coming. And all four of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist. He was a critical figure. Luke begins his Gospel with him. John, writing in the prologue, starts after he's saying there was the Word, has always existed, Jesus, who's God. He talks about John. I mean, John's a critical figure because John was a, a point that marked the end of an old era and the beginning of a new. John fulfilled the Old Testament expectations of someone who would come to point to someone new, the Messiah. And so John came, and he had a baptism of, 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 and a message of repentance and baptized to be re, of, as repentance. He did that expecting the Jews to come. This was not for Gentiles, but the Jews. He's saying the time is coming, the time is coming, someone is coming. A Messiah is on the way. But that we pick up in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus came to John. And he was baptized. The word baptized means to go under and to come back. It's a kind of a violent term. It really means to dunk and to push under hard, almost to drown someone. But we understand that it means to pull him under and then he, to pull it back out. He says, and immediately coming up out of the water. He came up out of the water. He was immersed. Part of the reason we practice immersion is because Jesus was immersed. Now, I know there's some within the Christian community, you know, they say, well, no, they talk about sprinkling and all that, and they go to great pains to try to explain, you know, how, how this is sprinkling. If you've got to spend a lot of hours and cut and paste a lot of Scripture to try to convince me this isn't immersion but sprinkling, obviously you're in the wrong track, my friend. The understanding, the clear understanding is to went in, and he came back out. When that happened, he saw the heavens opening. The heavens were, the sky was rent in two, it was torn open. You know, you realize that Peter's brother Andrew, we know from John, the, the Gospel of John, was a disciple of John the Baptist. We know that. Peter may have been also. So Peter may have actually witnessed this to some degree, or his brother Andrew may have told him about it, or maybe he just got it from Jesus. But he knew that the heavens were torn up, and then after it was opened, the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him, and a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So what we have here is, in essence, a picture of the Trinity. We have Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. Now, I know there are people who, who teach that the New Testament never teaches or depicts the Trinity. And when they tell you that, understand, they're either frauds or they're fools. It's just, I, mean, it's, I know that's not a very kind way to say it. I don't know I don't, you know, the way to put it. To deny something that is so clearly taught about God makes you either a fraud or you're just foolish. You just, you just don't get it. Now, we tend to focus on the coming of the Holy Spirit that he came like a dove. And the symbolism of the dove. And I, and I get the importance of that. Understand it doesn't say it was a dove. It appeared as a dove. All four gospel accounts to say that. Um, Luke says it had a bodily form as if it was a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove. And, you know, you can do a lot of research to try to figure out what the dove symbolizes. And at the end of the day, we don't know. We really don't. I, I'll just tell you, I take it to be it's just a symbol of the people of Israel as a whole. But that's not what's important. The dove is not important. If you come to this and you're focusing on the dove, you're missing the importance. It isn't a dove. It's the Holy Spirit. The importance is the Holy Spirit came. When the Holy Spirit came, 
Three significant things are symbolized. First, an anointing. The Holy Spirit anoints. He is the anointer. The Spirit of God is the one that anoints. So there's this anointing, this pulling aside of Jesus. Secondly, it gives him power. And the, and the power is the understanding of the authority. With the power comes the authority of God. And third, we would understand there is the authenticity. It's a realness. God is really there. Not only does the Holy Spirit come in, but then the Father speaks. He said, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Once again, refers to Jesus as the Son, the position of both serving God and having some connection to the humanity has come. He is pulled up by God, the intimacy, and God is pleased in him. So you have God affirming the coming of Jesus, affirming the ministry of Jesus here at his baptism. So what you see at the baptism of Jesus, it, what it really does is three things. Put, the baptism of Jesus does three things, points to three things. First of all, it affirms the ministry of John. In, in, in being baptized, Jesus is affirming the ministry of John. He's saying what John has said is correct. I'm in agreement with him. What is it that John is saying? He's saying the Messiah is coming. Jesus is saying that is correct. The Messiah is coming. So there's that connection to the ministry of John. The second thing. It identifies Jesus with the people. Now, Jesus didn't have to get baptized. I mean, the people were repenting of sin. And as a mark of that repentance, they were being baptized. Jews didn't normally get baptized. But here it's occurring. Well, Jesus, obviously, is not repenting of anything. But it identifies him. It solidifies him with the people of Israel as he is one of us, which is one of the reasons when we baptize, and we're going to have a baptism here in a few weeks, on a Wednesday night, we immerse. It's an identifier with God's people. Then the third thing is it begins Jesus' ministry with authority and authenticity. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. This is the point you point to and say, okay, when does Jesus start doing stuff? It's here. This is the beginning of the ministry that he has. So the baptism is important. It does those things. Now, with that in mind, understanding that the ministry, that the baptism of Jesus points to the beginning of his ministry. Here's what John does. Here's what Mark does in, in, in talking with Peter is this. The baptism of Jesus provides credibility to Mark's readers that Jesus is the one sent by God. You always got to have credibility. You know, I, I come and preach. I have to have some sense of credibility, right? I mean, you know, what's the credibility that I have? And you can look and you can see all my degrees. And you can see the years experience, you know, you know. But ultimately, you have to decide whether or not you think I'm credible. Every person who ever hears me teach or preach has to decide if there's any credibility. Mark's readers needed to know that what Mark was writing about had credibility. So Mark, writing from the perspective of Peter, wants to give credibility that Jesus is who Mark claims. Remember, the authority and the authenticity together give credibility. Jesus has the authority that comes from God and the authenticity that comes from God as pictured in his baptism. And there is the credibility. At this point, Mark tells us that Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. He doesn't say anything more about it. Matthew and Luke give a much fuller description of what goes on. And what you need to know is that when verse 13 ends, before you get to verse 14, a period of about a year 
occurs. We don't, you don't see that. Mark doesn't say a year later, he didn't do that. He didn't care about that. That kind of timing isn't important. But we know that a year occurs. And, and, and as we'll see in a few moments in verse 14, John's been taken into custody. We know about when John was taken into custody. But in the gospel of, of John, two different Johns, John the Baptist was taken into custody. But when the gospel writer John, the apostle John writes, he fills in that year between the wilderness or the baptism and what we're going to see in Mark in just a few moments. He fills that time in, and what you see and what we understand is Jesus has begun his ministry, gathering followers around him. He, he taught. He did miracles. He did some amazing things, and there was a group of people, a cluster of people, who began to follow him. Some he had kind of called out special. Next week, we're going to see the calling, the formal calling of Andrew and John and James and Peter. They're formally called by Christ. But this group of people had begun to follow him. And about a year later, Mark picks up with a series of events that become critical. And so here we see in verse 14. Now after Jesus, excuse me, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, came into the area of Galilee. Earlier we saw that he come from Galilee to be baptized. Now he's in Galilee preaching. Preaching the gospel of God. The word preaching is a technical term. It means a specific message is being preached or delivered. <clears throat> what was he preaching? Well, the gospel. The gospel, by the way, that comes and originates with God. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus. This is what I love. This is, what, this is one of my favorite things in all of Mark and really in all of the New Testament. Jesus came preaching Jesus. That's what that means. Jesus came preaching Jesus. You know our primary responsibility is to preach Jesus, period. That's my primary job. And I, you know, through the course of a year, through the course of my, I'm coming up on seven, I've been here almost seven years. I've done a lot of preaching on Jesus. Most of my preaching ends up ultimately just being about Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus preached on Jesus. And it seems that that would be a pretty good place to start. Whenever I don't know what to preach on, well, I'll just figure out, I'll preach on Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. It is the gospel. It is the good news. It is salvation. So he came preaching the gospel of God. Hang on a sec. You know, sometimes water tastes better than other times. Right now it tasted pretty good. Verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here you have two basically parallel sets of sentences. Um, the first one is, the time is fulfilled. Some of your versions have, the time has come. The time is fulfilled. Uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the time is fulfilled. The word fulfilled means to come to an end. In the Greek text, the Greek language is written in a way that speaks of a permanence that carries on. In other words, it's ended permanently, but the results of which carries on. Everything that has to be fulfilled has been fulfilled. One of the key teachings, you see this especially in, in Matthew. And last December, this past December, these last four weeks, I preached about the one who was coming, about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament expectations. He brought them to a conclusion. Watterson brought to a conclusion, the time. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for time. One word for time is chronos. That is time as such. Our word chronometer comes from that, a watch. Right now, the time is 1026 in 34 seconds. I mean, that's, that's the time. And so that's the, that's the actual time. But there's another word for time. That's not what's used here. The word used here for time is kairos. Kairos means time as such. In about another hour or so, it's going to be lunchtime. 
You know, some of you are going to get out of here and you say, it's time for lunch. It's not a specific time. It's generally the time. When I get out of here in a little while, I'm going to say it's time for another service. And that's where we're going to go. That's the idea. It's, it's the idea of an epic. It's the idea of an event. Jesus is saying something has been fulfilled. Some time, some epic, some period has come to a conclusion. What has come to a conclusion? Well, he, he goes on with the, the parallel to that. Whenever two statements are parallel, they reinforce each other. They connect to the same thing. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Some of your versions have near. The word at hand or near means it's arrived. It speaks of nowness. It's also written in such a way, it speaks of a permanent condition. The kingdom of God is at hand permanently. Now, the kingdom of God has to do with the reign and rule of God in the lives of people. It is not primarily spatial or the land that is ruled, but the people, those who fall subject to the king. Jesus is saying the kingdom has come. Sometimes I have people ask me, you know, you know, when the second coming of Christ comes, what do I think about the kingdom? Will Christ's kingdom come then or whatever? And Christ's kingdom has already come. I know that because he tells us this. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, that book, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus said that those who are poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of God. Not will be, theirs is now the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, that you should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else to be given. You seek, above all, the kingdom of God. You seek it now. At the coming of Christ, the kingdom was established. He's saying this. This is the kingdom now. When he comes again, it's consummated. I mean, then he comes again, and we have eternity. But we are living at the time where the king rules over the hearts of those who follow him. And at some point, he'll rule over the lives of all. He really does rule over the lives of all. He said... The kingdom that comes from God is at hand now. So something has ended. The old has ended. The time before Christ that was anticipating the coming of Jesus is at end. The time looking forward to the kingdom is over. The kingdom is now established by the king. So then he gives the second of two of the parallel statements. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Those are two commands, repent and believe, or commands. The word repent means to have a change. A change of course, to be headed in one direction or to think one way and to completely change and move in another. If you were trying to go from El Paso to Denver, I have no idea why you would do that, but let's just say you were doing that. And you were heading up that way on 10. If you missed the I-25 beginning or cutoff, you, you might keep on I-10. Eventually, you might realize, I'm not going to Denver. You're not going to say, well, I realize I'm heading for Tucson, but I'll get to Denver eventually. No, it doesn't work that way. Not if you know anything at all about where Denver is. So what do you do? You repent. You turn around and go back to 25 and go that way. To repent is to follow your own course of action, to live your life your way, to realize at some point you're headed in the wrong direction. But when you repent from something, you have to turn to something or someone. And Jesus says with another command, believe then in the gospel. The word believe means to put your faith or trust in. The word believe and the word faith come from the same Greek basic word. Faith is a noun, pistis. Believe is the verb, pistio. It means essentially to trust. Trust. What do you trust in? The gospel. And oh, by the way, remember the gospel is Jesus. <laughs> so not only is Jesus preaching Jesus, Jesus is saying, you got to trust me on this. The, the time is over, anticipating. The kingdom is now here. You got to trust me. You got to Put your faith in me.
And this was the message that Peter evidently preached about Jesus in Rome to some degree. And Mark, following Peter's lead, wants to begin his gospel with the most important message of all. you got to follow Jesus. In fact, what comes next, we'll see next week, is people following Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus broke into the world, calling us away from religious systems that depend on human will. He calls us away from all those religious systems. Oh, by the way, he still calls us away from religious systems even now. And to trust him. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. And this was the breakthrough people have been longing for. When you're trapped in a world of sin and you need a breakthrough, Jesus was that breakthrough turning us away from trying on systems devised of our own imagination and to turn to him. I can just see and think that if Peter, who Mark got this from, was here today reading what Mark wrote, Peter would probably maybe say something like this to us. The time has come for you to put your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The time has come for you to put your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Nothing else matters. And so I would ask you, have you put your faith in Jesus? I hope if you haven't over these next few weeks and months, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, at some point you would give your life to Christ. Then you would come to realize that you need to trust Jesus, that he would provide the breakthrough in your life you've been looking for, that you've been searching through all these different philosophies and religions and these systems, and none of them have worked. Maybe you've even tried Christianity to some degree, and none of it has worked because the systems won't save you. The systems leave you stuck in your sin. You need a breakthrough. You need Christ. And so in just a moment, if you'd like to give your life to him now, some of us will be standing here. Ladies, if you'd rather talk to a woman, you can do that as well. If you want to come and give your life to Christ, you can. If you want us to pray for you, we will pray for you. Now, you know, people sometimes just say, I want you to pray for me as I struggle with things. Maybe there's someone you love, and I get this all the time. Someone you care about, you want us to pray for them, we will. Maybe you want to come and join our church, that's fine too. But listen, the thing that you need to realize is that when Christ came into this world, he came for you. And you need to turn to him. And now is the time you can do that. Now is the time you can experience the breakthrough in your life that you've always, always needed to break towards Jesus. Father, we thank you so much that when the time was right, in your wisdom and by your will, you sent Jesus and he broke into our world. And in breaking to our world, Father, he came to take us away from all the sin, from all the system, from all the ways of man that trap us and keep us from you. So I pray that today and over the weeks and months ahead, that as we go through this journey in Mark, all of us to some degree will experience a breakthrough, a breakthrough in our life to come to faith, to strengthen the faith, to renew our faith, to proclaim our faith, and to honor you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.